It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame, and you got the. And there's a. Now that's a follow up question, <laughs> Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow up question right there. If you can be physical and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or, or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that, that'll always be the same. But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune and ND Insider, this is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pot of Gold and ND Insider Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football for ND Insider and the South Bend Tribune. The Irish couldn't hang with Clemson in Saturday's ACC Championship, and thanks to their disappointing performance, Notre Dame has drawn an even tougher challenge in number one Alabama in the college football playoff semifinal. For our first look ahead at Alabama, we reached out to someone who knows as much about the Crimson Tide as anyone, and that's Cecil Hurt, the sports editor for the Tuscaloosa News. Cecil has been covering Alabama for the Tuscaloosa News since 1982. Cecil, thanks for joining us. Sure, glad to do it. Cecil, let's let's start to maybe give Notre Dame fans some glimmer of hope. What are the <laughs> what are the weaknesses of this Alabama team? Well, first to give Notre Dame fans a glimmer of hope. Notre Dame's a very good team, outstanding quarterback, and and um, they they don't need um, me to build them up anymore. They've they've beaten Clemson once this year, and I think Alabama. Coaches and players have a lot of respect for Notre Dame. Um, so Alabama is probably the most dynamic offense in the country, um, even with the loss of Jalen Waddle. Now we'll have to see how the loss of Landon, Landon Dickerson, their starting center, mm-hmm. will affect them. They, they do have a solid backup in Chris Owens, but he's not Landon. Landon's a first-team All-SEC center. Um all-American first or second team on some teams. So that will obviously affect them. But um, Mac Jones, the quarterback, has played exceptionally well. I think Devontae Smith, a wide receiver, is is probably the front runner for the Heisman or one of the front runners, certainly, and um, really an electrifying player. And Najee Harris at running back, um, probably be the first running back taken in the 2021 NFL draft and has had a tremendous year uh, broke Herschel Walker's uh, career touchdown record in the uh, Southeastern conference in the win over Florida. So um, with that, there's veteran offensive line. There, there are other receivers, particularly John Mechie, who's really good. So uh, it, it's tough. You, and Steve Sarkeesian's a, a good play caller at offensive coordinator. So you just don't line up and and um, overpower that off. Nobody's done it. You know, nobody's held them under under what they wanted to score basically this year. Cecil, um, I, yeah, I was looking. I got asked in my live chat today what their weakness was, and I said punting, and I don't think they do it very often. Um, but. Even uh, even Charlie had Charlie Scott, who's J.K. Scott from the Packers. He's his younger brother. 
Um, he he's gotten better. He's he did he had a good game in, against Florida. So okay, um, well, uh, but but now the defensively, uh, the pass rushers improved. They're better defensively. They played a lot of young players this year, so they're better defensively than they were the first three games of the year. Now that you know, Florida scored a lot of points on them because Florida's a very explosive offense too. Uh, they have not faced. A team, there's nobody in the SEC that really runs the power two tight end um, offense that Notre Dame runs. Um, so how they'll shuffle physically. Alabama used to be absolutely built in 2012, which uh, I'm sure you guys remember. That's what Alabama was built to stop. I mean, they had the big defensive linemen, the real thumpers at linebacker. Um Nick Saban has made adjustments to that in how he recruits because you have to stop teams that can spread you out and throw the ball. Um, so they don't, they have a, a good rotation on the defensive line, uh, but it's not what they had on the defensive line in 2012. It's, it's just different. So because they're trying to stop different things defensively. Right. I, you know, I was looking at, I, I was looking at them and it seemed like the the two games where they didn't do well defensively was you mentioned Florida and then also Ole Miss, mm-hmm. and Ole Miss is so much more balanced than Florida. Right, uh, better running backs. Better running backs, and I, I was trying to find a, a theme, a common thread, and then I I tried to look for a team that was put together like Notre Dame. They are not a dynamic offense, but they are an offense where they try to play ball control with you. Right. And, right. And is there anybody that they played this year that's like that, that uh, whether they were successful or doing, doing it or not, that, that tried to kind of hog the ball from Alabama and was fairly balanced in their approach and that kind of thing? Georgia tried to be. Now, that was when Stetson Bennett was quarterback in Georgia, and right. he's not Ian Book. Um, so – it's a little bit different comparison there. Georgia led at the half, but couldn't stop Alabama. Alabama went in, made some adjustments, and they couldn't stop them. And the the problem with ball control against everybody else is, you know, you're, you're on offense and you look up and Alabama's got 40 on the scoreboard and is more than happy to let you have a nine-minute drive. You know, Auburn had a nine-minute – had an eight-minute touchdown drive in the – in the fourth quarter, well, you know, Alabama, that's okay, you know, because Alabama was up 42 to six. So um, that that's it. Again, they're just not as many teams and certainly the ones they face. And they only faced Southeastern conference teams this year, A&M to some extent, but again, A&M had to get out of what they do. Uh, Texas A&M is a good team. And and Mon's a good quarterback. Spiller's a good running back. Wedermeyer's a great tight end. So there would be some similarities there. Uh, really strong offensive line. But again, Alabama got 35 points on the board so quickly that they took K and M out of what they wanted to do. Made Mond have to throw more than he wants to throw. See, so you, you described all the talent that Alabama has on offense between Mac Jones and Najee Harris and Devon. <laughs> Who do you think is the most important of that trio in, in Alabama's offense? Well, the quarterback's going to be the most important. Um, you know, Mac's got to not turn the ball over. He's got to deliver the ball to, to Devontae or Mechie or 
Billingsley or you know, Najee's a really good receiver out of the backfield. So the quarterback's always the most important. It's that's um, pretty pretty basic. Um, but they're all, a, you know, and what Steve Sarkeesian tries to do with the offense, uh, they're all part of it. You know, it, it all relates. It all interconnects. If if you're going to double cover Devontae, which which teams since Waddle has been hurt, some teams have, have done more of that. But uh, they can get the ball to Mechie. They can they can throw the ball to Najee coming out of the coming out of the backfield. If you're going to try and stop Najee, if you, if you want to just try and stop the run, and nobody's put eight in the box. They're, if you want to put seven up in the box, and then you're going to single cover Devontae and Max really good at play action. And you, you're going to take a chance that, that all of a sudden you've got um, a potential Heisman winner out there one-on-one, uh, maybe even against a safety. So um, yeah, those those have not been good matchups for opposing defenses. Uh, Cecil, did you think that Mac Jones would be as good as he has been this season? I thought that Mac would be fine. I thought, you know, th- there was some talk in the spring back when <laughs> – pre-COVID when the concept of a spring existed <laughs> um, that Bryce Young would come in, the freshman from Los Angeles from, from Mater Day and, and compete and, and have a chance. But I always thought Mac Mac played well, although he turned the ball over twice against Auburn last year. And then he played well against Michigan. Um, got a lot of self-confidence, got a good arm. So I thought that Mac would be a, a good quarterback. I'm not going to say I thought he would be um, first team or second team All American again, which is what he's been in some in some ratings or lead the nation in quarterback rating. I'm not going to say that I I had that pegged, but I did not think he would lose the job to Bryce Young before the season. So, Cecil, I you know just from you know just counting back the years because you've been covering Alabama actually longer than I've been covering college sports. Uh, but you weren't you weren't at the 1980 Alabama Notre Dame game. <laughs> I was in I was in college. Field. Good. Yeah, well, I, I was at Ohio State at the time. But uh, yeah. But you must have had your share of Mike DeBose, Dennis French, Joan, Mike Shula. Sure. So so Alabama wasn't rolling during that time. What did no. Saban do in those very early years when he was going to an Independence Bowl and going seven and six? What did he do right off the bat to start this machine, which hasn't slowed down since? Well, that was his first year, you know, the transition year. Yeah. And they were in the Independence Bowl in January. In February, they signed Mark Ingram, Julio Jones, Marcel (laughs) Darius, um, about four – Dante Hightower, about four other NFL starters, um, and that'll get you rolling pretty good. Um, yeah, that's, that's step one. Uh, you bring in Julio, you've changed your team. You bring in a Heisman trophy, running back with him. You've changed your team a lot. So, um, they really recruited well, fortunate in, in some ways, Julio was in the state of Alabama, but, uh, so, you know, Mark Barron, another guy in that recruiting class. So, so that was step one. And then you start stacking, number one recruiting year on top of number one recruiting year on top of number one recruiting year. And that, that gets you rolling, but also, um, 
he had won a national championship. He he knew what he wanted to do. He came in. It was going to be done his way. He was going to not listen to, to people who say, oh, well, we've always done it this way. He didn't care how it had always been done. And he had the, he was given the autonomy to do that. Um, it's as, as is also true with Notre Dame. And I think Brian Kelly's done a great job, but you gotta have, you, you know, you've got to have some ego and, you know, you've got to be big enough for the job. You, you can't just, you can't just say, well, I've experienced this before. Um, now Nick had certainly come close at LSU, um, Michigan state and particularly at LSU. So he knew what it took to win in the Southeastern conference and he has confidence in doing that. And then, once you start winning, then it, the, the ball kind of starts rolling. So uh, they've had great players. Uh, he doesn't have to – you know, everybody they recruit knows what they're stepping into in terms of, you know, Najee Harris, number one running back recruit in the country. He sat two years. Derrick Henry, you've heard of him. You know, he sat for a year. Um, so – when and when guys like that, when your best players, when when Julio and Derrick Henry and and Amari Cooper and C.J. Mosley and, and your best players are bought in like that, uh, then it's easy. It, it, I shouldn't say easy, but everything follows from that. When those guys are also your hardest workers in practice, everything follows from that. And just following up on that, Cecil. That you know, with the transfer portal, it's so easy for people to kind of jump in there when they're not playing, and that happens so many places. Why is there that cultural thing at Alabama where guys that are five stars are patient, where they're willing to wait their turn? Because I see that's how it's been done, and they want to win a championship, um, and they know that that's that's how they're recruited. I'm not going to say Alabama certainly uses the the NFL draft as a recruiting tool. But in terms of, of going into a home, Nick doesn't have to go to Najee Harris, even if he is the best running back in the country, which he was out of high school, and say, all right, you're going to start. We're going to give you the ball first in the first game. He says, you know, this is our philosophy. Were, were you as good as a freshman in high school as you were as a senior? Well, you're not going to be as good as a fr- freshman at Alabama. And there are going to be seniors in front of you. And they know that up front. He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to promise anybody that they would start. Two, you know, Tua Valoa didn't start. You know, he doesn't have to promise anybody. That doesn't mean he won't start a freshman if they're good enough. They'll have Will Anderson on defense in the Rose Bowl. They'll have Malachi Moore. Um, but so, so there's a chance at playing time if you're the best guy at the position. But they don't have to. They, they don't necessarily have to promise that or, or build a team around any one guy. And, you know, they've had guys transfer out, the, the most notable, uh, Alvin Kamara, um, who've had success other places. But, you know, you, you, that's the, the advantage when, when Alvin transferred out and you still had Derrick Henry on the team or, you know, T.J. Yeldon then you don't – even an Alvin Kamara, you survive that. Cecil, why has Nick Saban been able to keep the program rolling when he's always dealing with a, a constant influx of coaches coming and going? How, 
how does he maintain sort of a high level regardless of sort of who's on the staff with him? Well, um, you know, it's, I guess there's a, an element of good fortune, but I've never seen him concerned about that. His attitude is um, he can hire the best people. He's got a list in his desk of, of who he can hire, of who he thinks is good, of who he's observed, um, played against, been aware of, and you know they can pay them what they need to pay them, and they can get them in there. So they've got a cow, and there's no egos or no, you know, there's no staff bickering in Nick Nick Saban's staff room. You know what Nick says goes. But that's why you can have a Kyle Flood and a Lane Kiffin and a Steve Sarkeesian and guys who have been high-level Division One head coaches uh, be your assistants. And, and you know, those guys are going to be better. And, you know, not that Nick doesn't hire a lot of young coaches and so forth, but, you know, they, they had six, I guess, six former head coaches, counting the GAs, you know, counting Butch and Charlie Strong this year um, because they, they – they can afford to do it. Um, they're willing to do it. There's no ego concern for Nick. You know, nobody's gonna gonna be the voice of the program other than Nick Saban. And so, uh, a lot of guys like that. And and then then guys, you know, when Elaine Kiffin moves on or when a Jeremy Pruitt moves on, people are looking at that and saying, "Man, that's a they got a really good head coaching job." Um, I need to get myself involved with that and get three years, two years, three years of Nick Saban on my resume. So that's why. And he's, he's confident that he knows how to hire coaches and go hire them and doesn't have to worry about you know, within reason. But, you know, if, if Sark makes $3 million as the offensive coordinator, then he makes $3 million. <laughs> You know, again, one of the things that came up in my chat, Notre Dame fans get really downtrodden when they have those games like the Clemson game Saturday, and they start to wonder if anybody, not just Notre Dame, if anybody's ever going to be able to be as consistent in getting to the playoff and winning playoff games as Alabama, Clemson, and Ohio State. What do you think it would take for – somebody else to make that a foursome or, or there be more teams, more variety in who's getting there and who's winning those games. First, it, it takes time. Um, and it takes, it takes solid coaching. Um, I would put Oklahoma in that group too, although they hadn't won the playoff, but they, they they're consistently close and have a chance. Um, you do have to commit resources. Uh, uh, again, not to, I'm going to leave this point after that, but I saw today where um, Arizona hired a new head coach, uh, Judd Fish, and part of his deal, they were talking about his contract and so forth, and he has a $3.5 million pool for assistant coaches. Uh, at Alabama, that would pay the offensive coordinator and the bus driver. That's what you'd get. <laughs> the, the other spots would go unfilled, you know. <laughs> so so um, it takes commitment of resources. It takes time. Um, I, I think the only magical way to do it would be if somebody 
came up with a with a NFL high high not lottery that's NBA but high draft choice quarterback. I would have been interested. I don't think they'd have won it, but I would have been interested to have seen Brigham Young and Zach Wilson this year. Um, but you know, you you've got to have a good quarterback. You look at everybody who's ever made it. And they, they hadn't done it in spite of their quarterback. And Clemson, that you talk about, has done it with Deshaun Watson and Trevor Lawrence. Um, Alabama's done it a, a little differently, but A.J. was good. Um, Tua, Jalen Hurts, and now Mac. Um, so, so that's part of the equation. You've got to recruit the best guys at that position, and you've got to have some depth. And – you got to have some injury luck. You know, Alabama missed last year, primarily because Tua got hurt, um, not just the hip, but even before the LSU game. He, he wasn't 100% against LSU. Um, had he been, I mean, you can't replay games. It's all hypothetical. But they certainly, going into 2019, thought they had a chance to win it. And that's, that's again, part of recruiting. So could a USC get in one year? Sure they could because they can get a quarterback like that. Oregon, they're, they're going to get there at some point. Um, I think it's really, really hard for, for – and this isn't a knock at anybody. I'm just going to pull one off the top of my head. It's hard for an Iowa State. It's hard for a Purdue um, to, to have that many players. And, and over the course of, of an 11-game, 12-game season, 11 for Alabama this year, 12 in a normal year um, – not to stub your toe somewhere. And then the selection process works against you because you're working against those teams that can go undefeated. Just to follow up on that, you know, Georgia seems like the team that's been recruiting at everybody up, you know, Clemson, Ohio State, Alabama level. Yeah. Hasn't had a lot of playoff. And I, I realize some of that's L- LSU too. LSU. LSU too. Yeah. But I mean, it, I'm, Georgia obviously had a was a mess of quarterback early this season but i mean do you envision them getting into that kind of regular grouping sure. oh oh yeah i'm not trying to limit i could yeah. see it happening at georgia i could see it happening at penn state yeah um michigan i don't know what all they have to sort out but, yeah. <laughs> they don't need to know that <laughs> hypothetically again i could see oregon i could see usc yeah uh, i would put texas in the same boat that i'm putting michigan would you put notre um, dame in that boat florida sure oh absolutely notre dame's tradition allows them to recruit and i think they aim high and recruit nationally and are well coached and and have uh have a chance to get there you know, they could turn around and make it again next year um now that, again what their quarterback situation will be but um yeah they're good enough they're good enough you have to have a little bit of of schedule luck and a little bit of um you certainly have to have injury luck uh, but but depth reduces the amount the the margin for error that's there for for a team to just come out of the blue and make it, and I, I don't include Notre Dame, but for Kentucky to make it would would take a real um, confluence of events, great quarterback play, upsetting, of maybe a down year for some schedule luck, like I said, a down year for a Georgia or a Florida and get in that way. Um, I would – I thought this year, particularly 2020, I thought eight teams would have been better. 
Um, I, I'm not always an advocate for eight teams, but I would like to see some different teams. I'm, I'm worn out seeing Clemson too. <laughs> but not, you know, I'm not worn out seeing Alabama because we print a special section and sell extra <laughs> advertising, and we'll probably do it. You know, if they win it, we'll do a book, and and so it's good for the job. Yeah. See, it's the last one for me. How, how would you compare this this Alabama team to to Nick Saban's other Alabama teams? I don't know if you have a well. A the, the, the the great thing, and this was also true of Coach Bryant, and Alabama's been aside from everything else, aside from the tradition, aside from the support, aside from everything, they've been remarkably lucky to have. I'm not going. I'm not going to debate two Notre Dame guys on, on Rockney or Leahy or Parsee, <laughs> but two of the, two of the all time greatest coaches ever in coach Bryant and Nick Saban. Um, and that's just fortunate. You know, they, they could have not hired Nick Saban coach Bryant. This was his alma mater. That was a little bit different, but um, to answer your question, how, how you would compare, uh, and this was also true of Coach Brown. His 1961 teams were very different from his 78. So totally changed the offense, was willing to adapt, was willing to recognize what it went on in football, wasn't blinded by his own success to the point where he would not change. So Alabama plays very differently than the 2012 Alabama team that you saw or particularly the, the 2009 national champions. Uh, because you have to play differently in college football these days. You have to score more points. And Nick <laughs> Nick simultaneously hates that, but <laughs> no matter what he hates, he loves winning more than he hates having to change. So he will change because he loves to win. And so he is he has changed. They're they're more athletic defensively, uh, guys that can play in space. They're not as big and powerful up front defensively. They're really not – it won't be the same offensive line where they just pound you and grind you because that's not what they try to do offensively anymore. Um, so so are they equally good? You know, 2019 went undefeated and won the national championship. This team could be equally good, but it's a very different – it's built in a very different way. And I think that's what separates the coaches that are at the very pinnacle of the game um, from everybody else is that they not only do they have success, but they don't become prisoners of their own success and preclude themselves from having even more success. I love that. Okay, my last question for you is about Clark Lee going down to Vanderbilt. Mm -hmm. uh, what's he getting himself into there? There's a lot of Notre Dame fans that, feel like that's a dead end job. I think that's because they want Clark Lee. <laughs> but I, I we all. and they're they're kind of hoping that he eventually is the future Notre Dame coach someday, head coach. So what do you feel like Clark Lee is getting into at Vanderbilt? What do you think his chances are of success there? It's hard. I like Derek Mason and I think Derek Mason's a good coach and he went 0 and 9 this year. Now they had COVID issues too on top of everything else, but it's just, it's difficult. Uh, I think um, James Franklin set the bar very high at Vanderbilt. Um, if you can win 
seven or eight games there, you've done a, a fantastic job, even in a regular year where you can schedule two or three, four wins outside the conference. Um, you know, a, a, a really good year for Vanderbilt is to win three out of four non-conference and it, it somehow win three, you know, Tennessee's down now, South Carolina, Kentucky, you know, get, get Arkansas, get three out of those on your conference schedule, uh, go six and six. And again, we're not talking about 2020. We're talking about normal years, go six and six, make a bowl. Um, I don't know that the expectations are, I mean, obviously the, the goal is to do better than that, but, I don't know that, that realistically uh, you can do much better than that. Their model, I guess, has to be Northwestern. Um, and that's, you know, if somebody got Vandy and Clark Lee may be able to do it, but if somebody got Vanderbilt up to Northwestern levels, that would be a, a coach of the year type job. Uh, that they had done or, or coach of the decade if they did it over a course of time. <laughs> All right, Cecil, we, we thank you for your time and uh, hopefully we get a, a, an entertaining game when it comes to January 1st. I think so. I think they're, they're, you know, uh, two different styles. Um, but I, I think uh, I have a lot of respect for Notre Dame and, and think it'll be a good game. We'll get back to the podcast in a moment, but first, a word from Coors Light. Wow, what a week of college football. Some of those games were thrillers. I hope you had some time to relax and crack open a mountain cold Coors Light. It's the one beer that's literally made to chill. The mountains on Coors Light cold-activated bottles and cans turn blue when chilled to perfection. So now that we know who the four teams are for the college football playoff, it should be a couple of great games on New Year's Day. Make sure your refrigerator is stocked up with plenty of Coors Light. Coors Light is brewed with a three-step cold process. It's cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged, so it's literally made to chill. When you need a moment to chill, choose Coors Light. You can even have Coors Light delivered to your door. Go to get.coorslight.com and find your local delivery options. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. All right, let's save our money for Christmas presents this week. Skip, place your bets, and jump into questions, Eric. Okay. Just tell me when you guys are, are we done with USC? Everybody's that you guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right. Let's go. First question I have for us is from Joe at Joey Salvatore. Can you guys take a dive into what happened on the offensive line? Do you think we lost our physicality in the running game or did Clemson having Skalski and Davis back really make that much of a difference? Um, well, I think, uh, having those three guys back definitely helped. I think they're really good players. Um, and not having Jerry Jarrett Patterson was also not adva- advantageous to that equation. Yeah. Yeah, 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 That's kind of where they were attacking. Um, Clemson had a better game plan and Notre Dame never adjusted. Notre Dame has been outstanding in the second quarter. That's been their quarter all year for in-game adjustments. And that was their undoing was the second quarter. Um, I think that um, also Notre Dame needs to play with the lead. That I think going into the game, they had been behind 44 minutes all season. 
and their style is better when they play with the lead or at least within one score where they, you know, where it's not getting away from them, their ball control philosophy, eating clock and all that stuff. The complimentary football works a lot better. Once it got away from them, then it was kind of like a runaway train and it really unraveled. So, you know, I don't think that their offensive line is broken, but I, I sure think Notre Dame had a really rough game, um, in terms of matching up game plans. Yeah, Skalski and Davis certainly made a difference, and um, Josh Lugg didn't play nearly as well as Jarrett Patterson. Um, he was getting pushed around too often in the middle of, of Notre Dame's offensive line. But I think just as a kind of a group, I'm not sure that the offensive line set a great tone for the offense. Um, they came out trying to run the ball in the first two plays and didn't have a ton of success. Josh Lugg and Aaron Banks didn't sustain their blocks on the first play, and then – Second play, they ran the counter play that's worked so well for them at times this season. And even Liam Eikenberg and Tommy Tremble didn't uh, block really well on that. So those are guys that you're relying on. And to, you come out to set the, set the tone of how your offense is going to play against Clemson this time. And they just weren't sharp at the very start. Now, certainly they found success um, passing the ball on that first drive. They're, they were protecting book well early um, and, and moved the ball on the second drive as well. But it seemed after that, third drive when they failed on fourth down the fourth down throw to Avery Davis um, they seemed to really sort of abandon the run um, the next drive was three passes and two of those were sacks and the next drive after that ne the next time they ran the ball was out of the pistol which um, as you know from my <laughs> my uh, analysis means it's almost certainly a running play and, and they ran out of uh, the pistol and Sebo Flemister lost four yards so um, I think Clemson knew what was coming there and I think they lost some of their creativity and, and the offensive line just wasn't really able to to set the tone and then keep that tone that they, that they need to establish against, against Clemson. And um, it, it was, uh, it kind of, it, felt, it sort of fell off a quick, pretty, pretty quickly there. Next question we have is from at ND Jeff zero six. Did Zeke Carell play much? If so, who looked better here? Look, and I'll just hop in first and Zeke did not play. Um, we, we believe his, his ankle injury is still giving him problems. Um, and, uh, and then the other question he had um, was also, did you see Javon McKinley's mother get into it with a reporter um, about the wide receivers not being a problem? And Jeff says he was, she was right, by the way. She put it on the offensive line as to why Book didn't make throws. What are your thoughts? Could Book have thrown more 50-50 balls? I'll let you go first and then I'll jump in. Yeah, I, I did see that. Uh, I, I I follow uh, Estrella McKinley, um, and I'm not sure if the reporter that was going back and forth with her her knew that uh, it was Javon's mom. I'm not I'm not sure. I mean, it doesn't necessarily matter either way. If they have a disagreement, that's fine. Uh, she's a very passionate person, and she doesn't pull punches. Um, but I, I do think there was plenty of blame to go around. I, the offensive line didn't play great. I thought Ian Book was sort of – um, pan panicking is maybe too extreme, but he was certainly wasn't comfortable um, early on, and and the wide receivers weren't running wide open on a consistent basis. Could they have made plays um, if the ball was delivered on time? I would have liked to have seen that. I think when you play against Clemson's defense and, and defenses that are the caliber of Clemson, the windows sort of close so fast that if, if as the quarterback you don't see it and anticipate it, and your attention is drawn by 
a couple of guys or the offensive line and not trusting what's going on in front of you, you're going to miss your chances and it's going to throw everything off. So I think, I think certainly Ian could have taken more chances. Um, I think in, in, with, with the game 34 to 10, Ian books passing numbers ended up being pretty respectful. I think he had eight com- incomplete passes, but when you're trailing like Notre Dame was, I'd like to see more incomplete passes, even an interception or, or two, because that means you're at least you're forcing the ball and trying to make something happen. And it seems like more often than not, he was trying to make things happen with his legs and he just was not able to do that. Clemson was not going to let him do that. And he needed to make some more plays with his arms and he wasn't able to do that. So was part of the question, did they give up too early on the run or was that your assessment? Um, That was my assessment for the previous question. This question was more, uh, more or less of whether or not the wide receivers were the problem um, with book, not, not deciding to throw the ball. Okay. So just focusing in on that part of it, I'd say they were less the problem than again, the whole dynamic of what Clemson did defensively. You know, normally if you're going to shut down somebody's running game, you're giving something up in the passing game, and it looked like Notre Dame couldn't exploit whatever Clemson was willing to give up to make that happen. Um, But again, so much of what makes Ian Book magic is him being able to do things outside the playbook. And Clemson wasn't giving him that chance. And, you know, a lot of times in the receivers, they're coming back to the ball, they're breaking off their routes, and and that wasn't happening. And even when it did, he often couldn't see them because he was kind of jumbled up in the pocket with pressure coming right up the middle. Uh, so I would give less blame to the wide receivers. And again, I thought this was, you know, from a coaching standpoint, it was a bad day. You know, I think Tommy Reese has been a revelation this year. And I thought he had a bad day against a really good offensive coordinator. And I don't think Brian Kelly had a great day either. Sure. The, the next question we have is from John Dillon at Dills127. I think this is um, what you were getting in in terms of the running game, uh, uh, maybe abandoning the running game. He said he started with offensive line, didn't think they could play this poor. Also, why did why do we give up on the run? I know we weren't doing well, but never seemed to be balanced of run versus pass in this game. What can we – and then he also has a question about what can we do differently going forward to protect our corners They're the weakest link on the defense. Well, I mean – did they give up on the run? You know, the one thing Clemson was able to do was hold down Notre Dame's plays, which is usually Notre Dame's game. They only had 58 plays. They ended up with, I believe, uh, 30 running plays, and 10 of those were Ian Book running for his life, basically. I don't think there were a lot of planned runs there. But, I mean, just in Ian Book's stats alone, it was over a hundred yard difference in what he did in Clemson one and Clemson two. Right. And that's a big deal. So, you know, they ran 40 times against Clemson in a double overtime the first to 30 times in a, in a, um, uh, in a regulation game. But I think it was the quality of the runs that were, I don't know that they gave up on it too quickly. Uh, especially if you get down multiple scores, I mean, you, the last thing you want to do is, again, have an 11-minute drive when you're down 31-3 to 3 or whatever. Right. Uh, so that's kind of my take on that. 
And then as far as protecting the cornerbacks, um, you know, you have to get more pressure on the quarterback. I mean, Trevor Lawrence could make a sandwich. He could run. I mean, he could do whatever he wanted to in this game. He could have, you know, air dried his hair. Um, even my mom, who's 90, that doesn't follow college football very well, she goes, you know what, Eric? I think he's pretty good. And I said, Mom, you are correct. <laughs> She she can get hired by the Jets or the Jaguars, and she can be their draft consultant. <laughs> yeah. Well, she was fascinated that there was a teenage girl in Atlanta who is a lookalike for him. That's what she really got a kick out of. Okay, okay. Uh, in terms of the uh, abandoning the run, you mentioned they ran 30 times. Eight of those were off of dropbacks, so Book was sacked six times and twice he scrambled, and once for no gain and once for a three-yard gain. So – you're talking about 22 designed run plays, which isn't a, a lot. Now, certainly that's – But out of those 40 that he had in the other Clemson game, a lot of those are improvising. He just made positive yards. On sure, that. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and certainly it's influenced when you're losing by a lot. You're not going to be running the ball as much as you were when you're in a close game that they were the last time. Um, but, yeah, I just think – I think at times – it's really tough for me to watch Notre Dame go three and out on a series and not run the ball once unless they're trailing by like 21. Um, I, I, you got to, you got to find a way to run the ball. And, and they were doing that early too, because that third drive started with an Avery Davis jet sweep that picked up like 18 yards or something. And it seemed like, like I mentioned it after the end of that drive that failed um, when the, the Avery Davis couldn't come up with the fourth down catch, it just seemed like the, the running game and any creativity in that running game seemed to kind of go out the window. And I thought, I know one of the things I talked about um, either last week or the week before on the podcast is the one thing we for sure don't know about Ty Reese is how he coaches with a significant deficit because they had, they haven't faced that as, as, as off when he's been the offensive coordinator. And they, they did when they went down a couple scores this game, the offense didn't look, to have any sort of rhythm and, and sort of got all out of whack and they just weren't able to recover. Now, I don't think that all falls on play calling. The guys got to go out there and make plays as well. Um, but they just weren't able to find what they needed to, to, to keep in, to keep themselves in the game. And uh, I think a lot of that was probably self-inflicted as well as Clemson just being really good too. And, and again, when you're a team that plays complimentary football, it goes south fast. If, if one side is struggling because, I, and talking with Jeremiah Wusukormoa after the game, and this happened in the 2012 National Championship game, even a guy as disciplined as him starts getting out of his gap because he's trying to do more because he sees other people struggling. And then guess where they're going to go? They're going to go in that gap that he just vacated trying to do somebody else's job. Yeah, and as for the the um, secondary or, or the cornerbacks, I'm not – I'm not really sure what the what the answer is. I, I I predicted that Notre Dame would need to win some one-on-one battles with their cornerbacks, and they lost a, a few of those significantly um, against Clemson. And I think it's a bad problem when your your best nickelback is your strong safety, which is what they they do with Sean Crawford. He moves down to nickel, and they bring DJ Brown out on the field. Um, they just don't have the depth to throw other options out there. And I'm not sure other other than like you mentioned, rushing rushing the quarterback and getting him out of rhythm and not allowing him the time to throw it down the field. I'm not sure that there's a lot of answers that you can do to, to um, not leave yourself totally vulnerable against the run. 
Um, so I, I think that um, it's going to be a tough situation, especially against Alabama in that, that passing game to try and figure out a way to slow things down with how efficient Mac Jones has been. Next question is from Roger at Reed Roger. We know what the difference was on one side of the ball, but what did Clemson do to our offense that was different this time around, and why could the Irish offense not adjust? Um, what they did differently in this game was, and they actually tried to do it in the first game and just didn't execute it very well, they they didn't have their defensive ends necessarily come all the way to the quarterback. What they tried to do is pinch Ian book so that he wasn't rolling out and keep him in the pocket. And eventually they felt like pressure up the middle would make that pocket break. And that happened a lot. Uh, They felt like they could take advantage with Tyler Davis against Josh slug. And, you know, Dabo said after the last game, what they had wanted to do was keep him, make him a pocket passer. And they were very unsuccessful doing that. And that was kind of the beginning of the end for Notre Dame. Uh, they didn't have an adjustment to that. They didn't have an answer for that. Am I missing part of the question, or was that the question? No, no, that was that. That was it. That was unless unless you have other suggestions of why why could the Irish not? Well, have- I, I think I think the adjustment that you could have made, and you know, you could have thrown some more screens. You could have hit and done some slants, gotten the ball out of his hands quicker. I'm not saying that would have fixed everything, but we didn't see really much of that as a counter. We really didn't see a counter. We just kind of saw the same movie, the whole move, the same plot, the whole movie. It didn't change. Yeah. The quick passes were working early on to that first and maybe even the second drive where they get quick, the ball quickly to Avery Davis or, or Ben Scronk. They weren't necessarily screens, but they were quick throws and those guys yards after the catch. Um, so I would have liked to have seen that continuum. Maybe that was part of the plan and, and the pass rush was just affecting Ian Book too much and he wasn't able to do what he would have liked to do. I would have tried to get Book out of the pocket more by design um, and do some things that way, I think. Um, but you're right. The pass rush was way more patient and, and sort of reacted to Ian Book, um, especially early on. Because I think once that happened to Book early on, then I think – and they, they weren't necessarily predictable. It wasn't always just the defensive ends – or just James Skalski like spying him, they would mix it up. There would be there would be a linebacker blitzing, and then one of the defensive linemen would sort of drop back and make sure he was kind of keeping an eye on Ian Book. So they were doing less overload blitzing for sure. The last time that Notre Dame played Clemson, Clemson rushed six or seven defenders on, uh, on ten dropbacks, and uh, in this past game, Clemson didn't rush more than five at all the entire game. Um, now maybe that's because they were having success with it, but I think that was part of their game plan. That let's not throw too many too many pass rushers at Ian book. Let's, let's pick our numbers wisely and maybe have a guy sort of hanging back to be prepared for what Ian book likes to do. And I, to me, it's not that hard of an idea to come up with. I'm, I think more teams have tried to do it that haven't been successful with it than the way Clemson was, because I think this has kind of been the book on Ian book, pardon the pun, but I, I think that that's just the way you, you have to defend him. And it, he clearly, gets uncomfortable with that at times if he's trying to do things within the pocket and get out of the pocket and you're just not letting him do that. He, he starts to lose his focus and is, is begins to see things less clearly when, when those things happen. Next question is from Mikey G at Mikey Galv. Either the wide receivers can't get open or book won't pull the trigger. 
How does Notre Dame fix that in the next two weeks? Well, I think we gave a few of the suggestions. I mean, they're going to have to have um, more answers to those kind of tactics. You know, earlier in the year when they played Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh over, over committed to the run, but they gave up so much in the passing game and they paid for it. Um, when you play teams like Clemson and Alabama, they're good enough to not have to give up a whole bunch because their corners are better. Right. Uh, you know, Pittsburgh had two really good safeties, but those guys were involved in the run um, and their corners were average. I mean, you know, Clemson has uh, Darian Kendrick and uh, Alabama has Patrick Sircane the second. And I mean, that could be your first team all America right there in those two corners. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they're able to get away with a little bit more. So, so this has got to be a really good game plan on Tommy Reese's part and able to adjust it in the middle of it. And then, uh, and you know, very good execution on Notre Dame's part. I mean, I, and again, I, I, I never kind of, peek down the question list so I hope I'm not blowing it an answer for later but no, you're right. but Notre Dame needed to get 14 points out of those first two possessions and they got three and I think that was the beginning of the end for them had they gotten 14 points then they could have played more their style and and Clemson would have been pressing a little bit more maybe those defensive tactics don't work so well but but getting three out of that that was just whew. That was that was bad news. Yeah, I, we're we're coming up with as many suggestions as we can, but if we knew the, the right answers, we 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 probably make a lot more money than we do getting to just write about college football. Um, so I think I think there are lots of possible solutions. Um, I'm not sure what the clear answer is. I, I think it was pretty shocking that essentially I, I don't I'm not sure that any of the backup receivers took a single snap. It was McKinley, Skoranek, and Avery Davis pretty much the entire time. That's that's true. I believe that that's true. I don't. I don't. I'm not sure that any of those get like Joe Wilkins Jr. or Braden Lindsey or Lawrence Keys are going to make that significant of a difference in the game. But I think it gives the defense different looks in terms of what they have to defend. And when Braden Lindsey comes on the field, you have to you have to defend him differently than Javon McKinley, even if you've seen Javon McKinley do some things. Well, and Braden Lindsay hasn't been able to do much at all this season. You still have to, they're still going to be aware of what Braden Lindsay's skill set is, and 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 have to think about that a little bit more. So I I know it seems pretty clear that they don't have much trust in Braden Lindsay staying healthy, um, but at this point you're not saving him for the off season. <laughs> this is winter go home. So I think you got to try and give get him out there. I think Joe Wilkins Jr. I mean they they've been giving him chances. He, a lot of times he was in these three tight end sets, um, and and he had, he had a chance to catch a deep ball. Uh, against um, Syracuse, and he, and he just he dropped it. And so I, I'm sure that probably played a role in them not wanting to put him out there and taking those other guys off the field. So I think some of that will probably be part of the solution. I would be It would be surprising to me if they just keep running out those three guys. Like, I, I still think you get the ball to Avery Davis more. I know he probably could have caught that pass on fourth down, but I know I, I didn't agree with what Kirk Herbstreit said on the broadcast, which – kind of informed why so many people were sort of chiming in at me on Twitter when I said that Ian Book threw it behind him. Everyone was insisting that Avery Davis needed to like slow down there. But my opinion and my understanding of how more scrambled drills are taught is that 
the receiver needs to keep going to the sideline when he's at that depth where Avery Davis is in order to get to the so where Ian Book is. I think stopping would have made the throw harder on Ian Book, and I think Ian Book typically would throw that ball to the sideline. I'm not sure why he didn't in that case. Um, that and maybe and maybe he did think Avery Davis would slow down, but it didn't make sense to me that he would slow down. He was wide open. And he was trying to get to how far to the right that Ian Book was rolling. And he came from all the way on the other side of the field. So he couldn't, he wasn't going to get there if he wasn't running hard. So um, I, I just think it, it's, there's a little things like that. Um, and I think that that play probably messed with Ian Book's confidence. Man, how did I mess that up? Um, even if he thought that it was Avery's fault, how are we, why do I don't have the confidence in him now? Does that affect your confidence moving forward? Um, so I, I think, I'm most interested to see how Ian book handles this game because I think he has to play with a sense of urgency and I don't think he wants to end his career at Notre Dame sort of running around the pocket like he was against Clemson and being indecisive at times. Um, So I think what happened in Saturday's game goes well beyond him. Um, But I think in order for Notre Dame to overcome their limitations as an offense, he has to be playing with confidence and make the the right decisions um, quickly, uh, and, and so that's uh, that's going to be that that'll that'll go a long way in determining how well Notre Dame's offense plays plays against Alabama. Next question we have is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. Um, I think this is our last Clemson question for the day. With Ian Book running for his life, can you explain the lack of screens and quick outs? Also, why no touches for Chris Tyree until late? He scored late in the game, but Clemson still had the starters in. What grades would you give Tommy Reese and Clark Lee? It seems that both were out were badly outcoached. Well, okay, um, we've kind of talked about the screens and the um, the quick passes, and maybe that I got the idea from Marie, so I'll give her credit for that. <laughs> um, so yes, I love that idea. Why not Chris Tyree earlier? Well, you know. He only carried the ball a couple times in the first Clemson game and got minus four yards. So I'm not sure that there was something in that game that told them, hey, let's get him more touches. The other thing was Kyron Williams is a guy that's going to get you typically yards after being yards after contact. I don't think Chris Tyree's that kind of runner. And you, you know, he certainly can take advantage of a mistake, but so can Kyron Williams. And Kyron only had 15 uh, carries. I think I'm going to go with that horse. I can understand why people want to see Tyree because of his speed. And he can hit home runs. I mean, he hits football home runs. Uh, (laughs) But he can hit them on kickoff returns, too. Um, And so I I wasn't clamoring for Chris to get into the game. I like to see Kyron Williams in a game where you're trying to establish some physicality. Plus, I think he's a better blocker than Chris is, and I think they needed his blocking. What was the last part of that question? What, were you, what grades did you give recently? Oh, man, I'd make him stay after school. Uh, <laughs> that's the best way to put it. <laughs> um, I think they're both outstanding. I think they had a bad day. Probably Tommy more than – I, I think – Clark Lee's assignment was more difficult. I'm still not sure what you do with them when Trevor Lawrence is the quarterback, because not only does he have the mobility, Tyler, and you know this, he makes throws that other quarterbacks can't make. Mm 
you know, he can be kind of going to his right and then throw to the field side and just do it on a rope. And, and I don't think defensive backs are used to seeing that. Usually those are kind of flailing throws that a safety can come up and pick off. And his is just, I mean, I, we're not supposed to reveal our Heisman trophy pick, but if you were to take a guess, he'd be on my ballot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think, uh, as for Tyree, I think you know, cl- clearly the coaching staff doesn't read us or listen to us because I thought Chris Tyree would be more involved in the offense this time around. I thought that was something they could do to counter sort of Clemson's talent resurgence with being more healthy, and I thought they could get him on the edge more. Um, but that that wasn't part of the game plan. I'm not really sure why. I mean, I understand that they weren't running the ball a lot, so there weren't a, there weren't a lot of opportunities for him, and you don't want to you don't want to sacrifice. Kyron Williams' touches for the sake of that. Um, I mean, but it's not like they put in Tebow Funnister and ton and gave those carries to him instead of Chris Tyree. So um, it, it's, it's perplexing, I think, but I, I do under, I, it with the way they, they sort of executed their game plan, I guess it makes sense, but <laughs> their game plan didn't work uh, once it got to the second quarter. Um, so I, I, if, if I had to give grades, I, I, I don't know if I would do, I think I would give, Clark Lee, a letter grade higher than Reese. So whether that's a C and a B or a, a D and a C, um, I'm not sure. MC, just kidding. I, I'm not sure that the defense was out, out schemed. Like, I'm not sure that they had guys that like Clemson was doing things that Notre Dame's defense wasn't taught to or put in the right position to stop those plays, but there was poor execution in, in times. Like, like you said earlier, Jeremiah sort of, it just takes one or two guys to get out of their run lanes and that, that can really come back to bite you. And uh, the long, the first touchdown pass to Amari Rogers, Sean Crawford bites on a, bites on a move. And then he gets beat deep. If, if he plays good coverage there, Clark Lee doesn't look like you made a bad, a bad play call. So I, I think that was more poor execution. Now maybe some of that is reflective of the preparation, but I don't know that Clark Lee wasn't locked in. Although people want to try to assume that, getting the Vanderbilt job is related to Notre Dame's defense playing not as well. I, I, I don't buy that, but um, I, I think that um, neither of them had games that they're probably particularly proud of. I'll, I'll ask you this question because I saw this somewhere that somebody thought Ian Book did too many interviews and that was part of the problem. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't buy that. I, I, I don't buy it at all. No, no, no. I mean, I do think the way he – the one quote he gave to Kirk Herbstreit about how we have all of our guys, so we'll, we'll, we'll be happy. He, I don't know exactly the quote, so I don't want to misquote him, but he, he's talked about how they could win or would win, and that was their hope to do that. I'm sure that was – Clemson probably heard that and didn't didn't use that as a motivator. But Clemson wanted to beat Notre Dame. They already lost to him, so they wanted to beat them. So, to well, me – They had to win that game yeah. theoretically to get into the playoffs. So stuff like that, that doesn't really matter. It's stuff that that's kind of the, that's the stuff that gets rubbed in your face after the game when you lose, just like um, people wanted to uh, shame Brian Kelly for talking about the playoff before, before they were in the playoff. Um, when, if he makes that rant the next day, the decision's already been made. So <laughs> I'm not sure that his rant specifically was the the turning point in that, that process, but I, I, I don't, both for Ian book and Brian Kelly, 
I'm not going to get upset for people being honest to reporters that are asking them questions. That's what we want. I, I, and when people like think that they're giving things away or they shouldn't be talking about things at certain times, I just don't agree with that. Everyone is a human. We all think about things that aren't, aren't happening right now. I would much rather hear those kinds of things and talk, hear about how they prepare day after day and week after week and next man. That, that we, 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 we can't we can't be just turning these people into robots and and thinking that everything they say is going to impact how the play happens uh, um, when they get on the field. I, I agree. I'm human, and I have this big stack of Amazon boxes over there, <laughs> and I'm not sure how all those are going to have wrapping paper on them in the next couple of days. I'm trying to hope <laughs> that there is an elf that will come and help that's COVID free. <laughs> well, don't ask me because I got gifts behind me that I got to wrap too. <laughs> uh, all right. We got a question from Roberto Mota at Good Mota. Three points that Notre Dame football has to implement in order to beat Alabama. Um, I would say you got to win the turnover battle. You've got to win the line of scrimmage. And you got to be – you got to be the third down team you've been all year, both offensively and defensively. If they do that, they have a chance. Yeah, that's that's the thing. I'm not saying they'd win. I'm just saying they would be right. That gets them on the road. That that that's the thing about football that makes it so great. Like it's not that complicated when you put you put it in those simple terms. Like that's going to win you pretty much or give you a chance to win every game. Like that doesn't change that much from game to game. But I, I think. It's obviously when you play a team as talented as Alabama, those are the kinds of things you have to execute on. I think I have a slightly different – I mean, they're all all sort of related. Um, The three points that I wrote down were don't leave the red zone without touchdowns, um, force multiple turnovers. We we don't have to limit the list to three. (laughs) And uh, double-team Devontae Smith the entire game. (laughs) I don't know how they're going to defend him when I want it with anyone. So I think you just double team them and take your chances with everyone else. But, um, and uh, certainly don't let Sean Crawford get stuck in a one-on-one situation against Devontae Smith, but I'm sure Alabama's offense is going to try like heck to try to get that to happen. So I think, uh, I think that uh, those would be some things that I would be trying to implement if I'm Notre Dame's coaching staff, and I'm sure they're aware of the, the challenges that lie ahead. Next, next question is an email from Ken in Pensacola. If by some miracle we beat Alabama, do you and Eric feel Notre Dame would or could beat Clemson in a rematch, providing that they beat Ohio? I think, I think there's always a chance. I, you know, Vegas has them as a 14-point underdog if that were to happen, um, and so they wouldn't be favored. But I think – they could beat them, but I, I, that would not be my expectation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if Notre Dame beats this Alabama team, they can beat anyone and we've already seen them beat Clemson. So yes, if they, if they do that, they can, I, I don't know that they will. Um, I, I, I've said before that if Notre Dame were to somehow have beat Clemson, beat Ohio state and beat Alabama in, in three consecutive games, that might, they might be the best Notre Dame team of all time if they were able to do that. Um, so this is even if they were to beat Alabama, it's not going to guarantee you any sort of success against Clemson. Um, but certainly there would be a chance to do that. I think that Notre Dame would certainly have a good understanding of what it's done wrong um, against um, Clemson uh, this past Saturday. 
Um, and it knows what it can do well against Clemson from the previous time that they played. So I would say that they would have a chance, but um, <laughs> first things first and good luck in beating Alabama. But yeah, if they get, I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule that out if they were able to beat Alabama. I mean, here's, here's where Notre Dame is as a program right now. When they play these teams in the playoff, it's harder than in the BCS day, days. You have to win one. Right. Now you have to win two, but Notre Dame, has very little margin for error. That's the biggest difference. They're not, it's not impossible for them to win, but they have to do everything right. They have to check every box where like Clemson, yeah, Trevor Lawrence, I'm throwing an interception here early in the game and right, yeah. they can live with that. Yeah. And like if, if Notre Dame's defense played the way Alabama's defense played against Florida, like Notre Dame probably would have lost that game. But they, they, their Alabama's offense is talented enough to just, okay, you guys are making it close. Well, we'll just go down the field and score another touchdown. Um, so that's the margin of error is, is like, you're right. I, I agree that that's, that's why. And I think it frustrates Notre Dame fans when we talk about, and, and when Brian Kelly says, well, the second quarter got away from us and that was the difference in the game. Whereas like, well, okay, but if you're a good football team, can't you overcome that? And yes, Notre Dame is a good football team, but they're not, at the same level as the teams that they're losing those games to, um, to be able to overcome those obstacles. And you, you'd like to think that uh, settling for a field goal on the first drive and missing a field goal on the second drive wouldn't debilitate Notre Dame's sort of confidence and chances of winning the game, but it, it, it starts to add up and it puts doubt in your head. And I think that um, sort of puts you in a tougher situation as you, as you try to beat these, the best teams in the country. All right, next question is from the Jackal at the underscore Jack Attack. What does Notre Dame do to hide Sean Crawford in coverage? I'm sure Bama will target him a lot. I would wear a Kyle Hamilton costume. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, again, they're going to use motion. Alabama's going to use motion and things of that nature to try to get Crawford into that matchup. The thing about Crawford is, you know, if – First of all, Notre Dame doesn't typically play a lot of man, and they better not against Alabama, and right. that will also help if, if he's not isolated himself. Right. And if they are in man, Mac Jones is smart enough at the line of scrimmage to check into a play that would get him. I mean, it was amazing when Clemson played. I mean, good coordinators and good teams and good quarterbacks can do that. When Julian Love went out of that game two <laughs> years ago, they knew exactly – Clemson knew exactly where to throw the ball. Yeah, whether it was Devontae Vaughn or Dante Vaughn, they knew that that, that was the guy they should be targeting. <laughs> um, that's a little uh, Brian Kelly joke. Uh, what uh, – in terms of uh, Sean – the thing, the thing about Sean Crawford is he's on the field for almost every snap. So I don't know how you hide a defender when you have to have him on the field for every snap. Um, certainly you can put him in situate you can limit his his situations where he's in one-on-one coverage um and 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 maybe play more make sure you're playing more zone coverage and nickel situations when he's having to play closer to the line of scrimmage against receivers um but i I think i'm not sure what the answer is and i i know it's it's not like who whatever safety are you going to throw out there you know if you took them off the field Right. You know. yeah, it's, I, they just don't have the, the depth of options in the secondary to uh, that they feel better in than, than putting Sean Crawford out there. So you're just going to have to live with it and hope it doesn't get exposed much. And, and I'll tell you what, I give Sean that Crawford, credit. He made it through the season 
without an injury for the first time. Yeah, and Sean, well, hopefully you didn't jinx him for the bowl game. But <laughs> uh, I think uh, Sean Crawford's not the only one that has played poorly in the secondary, to be clear. Uh, certainly Tariq Bracey and, and Clarence Lewis, Lewis have had their moments. Um, Tariq Bracey didn't get a snap in that game. Yeah, and I think that that has been one of the things that's hurt this secondary the most is sort of the, the, the lack of faith and the, sort of the loss of confidence seemingly in him. Um, I think within himself, I think he – it seems when he – the last times we've seen him out there, it seems like he's lost confidence in himself from some of the play that he's had this season. So um, I think that has really hurt Notre Dame, and he would be a guy that you would, you would hope you could put in sort of a nickel package and then you can keep Sean Crawford back at safety. But um, I think that um, – they, they just don't have guys and they're, they're kind of stuck with the guys that they have out there. And um, it's up to Clark Lee and Mike Mickens and Terry Joseph to figure out ways to put them in the, the least compromising positions. All right. Another one from Joe at Joey Salvatore, not trying to be hyperbolic, but is Indy headed for the worst loss in program history in the Rose bowl? I thought it was in Rose bowl history. That's what I researched. Um, oh no! <laughs> I, I think. Well, I have I have the research for the other thing, so you go ahead and give us like your Rose Bowl history. Well, I mean, there's been 49 point margins in the Rose Bowl before, um, so you know, and there's been a lot of blowouts in the Rose Bowl at different times, and and, and some really good teams have got blown out in the Rose Bowl. To lose to the number one team in the country and a <laughs> number one team that's Really, really strong. Not a number one team that kind of fluked its way up to the top. Um, I don't know that there's a score that would make that the worst loss in Notre Dame history. I think there are upset losses to bad teams. Uh, there was a Syracuse loss during the Charlie Weiss era to a, just a god-awful Syracuse team uh, that was – you just shook your head. And the Boston College loss – when Troy or when um, Tyrone Willingham had an undefeated team and they wore the green jerseys and Pat Dillingham threw the ball right to that Boston college defensive lineman, you know, and, and I lived through 2007. So, um, (laughs) you know, I I don't think that there's a possible outcome that would make this the worst loss. You know, the interesting thing about these blowout losses is right before Clemson, turned into Clemson, they lost in a bowl game to West Virginia, 70 to 33. And then that started the, the whole Clemson, we're going to kick your butt kind of right. mode. The, so, so the worst loss in Notre Dame history in terms of margin of defeat is 59 to zero um, against army in 1944. So I don't think it will be worse than that. <laughs> um, uh, that would be pretty bad. Uh, I think that's one of the years Leahy was actually in the Army. <laughs> Maybe he was coaching for them. <laughs> the, yeah, the, seriously, he missed a season or two in World War II. Uh, so I, I don't know that research. I didn't. I didn't look. I, I, you know, now that you say that, I don't. I don't think he was the, the coach. I think I would have remembered seeing his name listed as the coach in that game, but I don't. I don't think that was it. Was him. Um, the worst loss of the Brian Kelly era was a 35 point loss to USC to end the 2014 season. Um, that was 49 to 14. Um, so if Notre Dame doesn't play well against Alabama, it could certainly be a wider margin than 35 points. Um, but uh, I'm not sure. I haven't, I haven't made it 
put, pin myself down for a score prediction. Part of the reason we skipped uh, place your bets today and make sure that we can get some good ideas for the Alabama predictions for next week. But um, I don't think it'll be the worst loss in program history. And, and certainly I think uh, Notre Dame needs to go out there and even if it's a loss, perform well and, and learn what it can do to be better and, and get to that level that Alabama is at because that's where they want to be. And they need to keep making improvements in order to get there. There have been more 30 plus point losses in the playoff semifinals than there have been single digit losses. So it's not, and some of those teams have come right back. Ohio state lost by 31 to Clemson one year. So, I mean, it's not the end of the world. I, I think you got to make the most that you can out of this experience. And if you win it, then you've shocked the world. And if you lose it, you made it there. And you're not at home, you know, with a big bag full of Cheez-Its that you got at the Cheez-It Bowl. All right. We have one last question, and I got a prop for this. So I'm going to ask you the question. And while you answer it, I'm going to take you with me to go get my prop. Um, okay. Brendan from at very piratey um, says eggnog. Yes or no, or never had it. So am I supposed to answer that or you're going to yeah, you answer and, and filibuster while, while I set up my uh, prop. Okay. Well, eggnog is a drink that people drink at Christmas time. I know that it has eggs in it and it has nutmeg and it has some kind of booze in it. And I want to say this, I have tried it once and I didn't like it, and I was disappointed because I wanted to like eggnog. I wanted there to be something at Christmas that I could look forward to besides presents, family, and sweets. And eggnog, I thought, though, that would be a fun tradition, uh, much more fun than the mistletoe. And uh, so for me, it's a big pass after my first taste of eggnog. All right. So you did an excellent job because you gave me the required time to go to my fridge and get a quart of eggnog that I purchased today. Um, it's, it's actually the last quart of eggnog they had at Target. So it, it, it's very popular. Now, I, I'm not sure if I've had it or not. It's it's not like a tradition that I partake in. What's its brand? What's the brand? This is Dean's Country Fresh. Now, hopefully I don't think it's terrible. And they want yeah, there's no booze in it? There is not booze. No, you have to add your own booze, I believe, is how okay. it works, which I do ha- I do own, but I'm not going to add any booze for the for the for my podcast taste test. Now, this won't be quite – I don't have as high expectations for this as I did when we had uh, Beth Elston's cookies on the podcast. Uh, oh, my God. A couple years ago. Um, and I know you guys can't see this, but I'm going to go ahead and try eggnog. Um and I'll, I'll give you a play-by-play of his face. <laughs> I'll uh, let you guys know what I think. Okay, he's smiling. He's kind of sipping, gulping. He's swishing it around his mouth, and I think it's pretty good. Okay, I could I could drink that. Yeah, it's uh, what does it go with pumpkin? Um, I guess it could go with pumpkin. I suppose. I mean, pumpkin can go well with anything, in my opinion. But um, uh, I um. I, I will say, I think I will finish the rest of this uh, eggnog. Um, it even says non-alcoholic on, on the, on the uh, court here. Um, so, yeah, I think that's good. I think, uh, I know my dad drinks eggnog, and I don't, I, I, don't, I honestly don't recall if I've had it before. Um, I think I've probably had, like, 
um, boozy at like a Christmas at a Christmas bar that had some sort of eggnog flavoring to it. But I don't know that I've ever actually sat down and drank a cup of eggnog. So um, thumbs up to eggnog. I, uh, we'll, let's, uh, I, I don't know how everyone feels about eggnog. I, I won't be sharing this with Eric, but um, maybe we can get, uh, get him some, some Coors Light to drink uh, over, 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 the, over the break before the playoff. All right, that's it for today's episode of Pot of Gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you like what you hear, shoot us some stars and leave a review. We'll be back next week for more Notre Dame-Alabama talk. Until then, stick with NDInsider.com for all your Notre Dame football coverage needs, and have a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.